You are listening to the Women of Wonder podcast, where we want to see Sister Soar. We hope that you are inspired by this message. I am excited about sharing about Esther. It has been a book that I have loved since a child. And I think I loved it for different reasons when I was young. Um, When I was young, it was sort of like the story in the Bible that's orphan, that becomes a queen and saves the day. It's kind of like the Disney the Disney movie of the Bible. (laughs) And then as I've matured, I've come to see that there's so much depth of character that Esther and Mordecai have that, you know, Esther doesn't just out of thin air become a woman of courage and such an advocate for justice, just kind of, you know, all of a sudden, it actually took a lot for her to get there over time and, and Mordecai cultivating that in her, it took a whole community, you know, and our topic and the topic of WOW's, the theme for 2022 is Ezra communities. And I think last year, WOW focused on what Ezra meant and Ezra, as you all know, means help or helper. And it refers to Eve when she was created as a helper for Adam. And uh, most people are familiar with that, but they don't know that Ezra actually refers to God most of the time in the Bible. And it's God as a warrior rescuing his people. It is a strong word, help in times of trouble. And, And the focus of Ezra community is that Actually, we are that to one another and we need one another to become the people of God that God has called us to be in order to follow our call, which oftentimes it's hard to even discern what God's calling is to develop our spiritual gifts. All of those happen in community. It happens with the people who love us and know us and encourage us and believe in us. And so I, uh, part of why I, I am so excited to share this is because many of my Ezra community people are in this call right now. <laughs> and so I get to share this with people who have been that community for me. So a little, let me start with some background on the book of Esther. Esther's author is unknown. The book was written between 460 and 350 BC. Most Jews at that time were living in exile. It was in the Persian empire. So the Southern kingdom, of course, was they were exiled, taken by the Babylonians, and then Babylon fell to the Persians. So it's at this time that Esther, the book of Esther is, takes place. It's actually one of two books where the name of God is not mentioned. There's another book of the Bible where God's name is not mentioned directly. Song of Solomon. And, um, and there's some translations that there's like a, there's a Hebrew word where the ending of that word is translated Lord, but actually the name of God is not mentioned in Solomon either. And it's only 10 chapters, but it is filled with drama, action-packed, twists and turns and intrigue. That's a little bit about the background. We're going to talk about Ezra community in the book of Esther. So we're going to highlight some things in the book where you see this community for that's around Esther. And again, Esther could not have risen up 
as, and I'm calling her an Ezer warrior because she becomes a help to her people in a warrior type way. And she could not have become this person for such a time as this without her community. And so we're going to look at four things in the book of Esther care. She receives this kind of, um, care and nurturing from Mordecai. And it's, we all need this kind of care in order to grow in our faith. And then um, Mordecai becomes, you know, he counsels her, he calls her to action in a key moment, which we'll focus on in chapter four. And then commit is another part where Esther really commits her plans to God, but in a corporate way. She is committed her plans to the Lord and seeking the Lord together with others and in fasting and prayer. And then finally celebrate at the end of the book. And this again is done communally and it's done communally for a reason because we need to remember the goodness of God in our identity, our identity in the Lord. And also that we're part of a larger story. You know, it's not just God delivering us for this one moment, but we're connected to this larger picture, this larger story of salvation. And when we celebrate together and remember what the Lord has done, it connects us to that larger story. Before we jump in into those, like the four C's, as I'll call it, um, I want to just spend a moment touching on the opposite of Ezra community. And King Xerxes and Hammond really um, exemplify the opposites of that. They are all about self-glorification. And when the book opens in chapter one, it's the king showing off his splendor in a grand feast. If you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and turn to the book of Esther. We're going to flip around a little bit in Esther. And so I'll point out a couple of verses. So go ahead and turn to Esther chapter one verse 4 and 5. And I'm in the NIV. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. And it goes on to describe just the opulence and the splendor of all of the things that he's displaying and the wine and it's just they're drinking and on the seventh day you know they're sort of high on wine he he requests that queen Vashti comes because he not only wants to show off his things he wants to show off his wife and the in her beauty and what happens when you know, we're at the center and we're all about self-glorification is that we become angry when others are not in line with glorifying us. And that's what happens when Queen Vashti refuses to come. Queen Vashti exercises her voice by voting with her feet and she refuses to come. And the king is enraged. And so he goes to his counselors and his advisors, those who surround him, also are about glorifying the king. They tell the king what he wants to hear. And their concern is that, you know, if Queen Vashti is refusing to submit to you, what about all the other women who will um, follow, think that they can follow Vashti's example? How are we going to maintain our power? That's what they're concerned about. And so when Queen Vashti ceases to be useful, she's disposable and he discards her. 
And then Hammond is the same way. Hammond is about his self-promotion, his self-glorification. And you'll remember later on in the story, he's promoted to like number two and everyone's bowing down to him, paying him homage, except for one person. And that is Mordecai. Mordecai does not bow down and that enrages Hammond, similar to how it enraged the king when Vashti didn't obey him. He goes to his friends and he's telling them how upset he is by Mordecai and his his friends also agree with him and, and actually tell him, why don't you build a gallows where you could hang Mordecai? And it wasn't enough just that Mordecai would not, would be killed, would be murdered, but Haman wanted to annihilate all of Haman's people, the Jews. So that's the, that's the plot of Esther. And as you can see, it's all about building themselves up. When, and that's not an Ezra community. That is the opposite of an Ezra community. So let's let's jump in now to the first C that we're going to highlight, and that is care. Care. And Hadassah is Esther's Hebrew name. Hadassah had lost her parents at a young age. We don't know exactly how. She also lost her country. We don't know whether she was born in exile. I think she probably was. But those two things, when you lose your parents, when you lose your, your country, your culture, all of those things at a, at a formative point in your life, that is traumatic. That can affect you for the rest of your life. There's a reason, I think, in the Bible where God is, all, is, is paying special attention to widows and orphans and the poor. They're, they're the most vulnerable in society. Back then and also today, vulnerable children, the statistics are not good. If you're in foster care in America, 20% of foster kids who age out are homeless the day they age out. 40 to 50% of kids who age out of foster kid, uh, foster care in a year and a half will be homeless. And 80% of inmates have been foster children at one point in their life. They are the vulnerable in society in need of care. What do Joseph, Moses, and Esther have in common? They were exiled. Yeah, they were. Joseph eventually makes his way into the palace of Egypt, but Moses was raised there. And of course, Esther is in Susa in um, the Persian palace. So they become the ones who God chooses to use to save their people. Joseph from famine and of course, Moses out of slavery into the promised land and hear Esther from her people from genocide. They're in effect orphaned. Joseph losing his mother. His mother dies in childbirth bearing Benjamin and then, you know, gets sold into slavery. And Moses, of course, because of the edict to kill all the baby boys and he's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And here we have Esther and they have become leaders in a foreign land. So they have all of, it's so interesting that they have all of these things in common and that they've experienced deep loss at a young age. And I think that forms them, that really that loss has um, shaped them in a way where they can identify with those who are vulnerable because they themselves have been in a vulnerable place. Despite having been exiled, they still have a tie to their people. They identify with their people to lead their people. They have to keep that tied to their heritage, to their faith, to their God in a place of exile, which is often very difficult to do when you are surrounded in, by a different dominant culture. 
And so that is just uh, very interesting that this is this, the case for Esther as well. I am a second generation Chinese American. My parents are immigrants. And my mom all instilled in me a pride of my Chinese heritage from a young age. And I always thought that I might adopt. And so when, when we decided to do that, we knew that we would go to China to adopt. So three and a half years ago, we adopted our little girl, Hannah, and she, by all accounts, was so well cared for. Like all of her basic needs were met by her caregivers there, which we were very fortunate. But adoption, there's always a tragedy that precedes adoption. And my heart was actually filled with grief for her because I knew that I, the next day we would be flying out. I would be taking her away from her homeland, her culture, and farther away from her birth mom. We don't know who her birth mom was, but, but I just felt like I was taking her away from all of those roots that she, she had in China. And when she returns there one day, when she's older to visit or maybe to find you know, more of her um, relatives there, she is not going to feel Chinese the same way that she would be. She will feel American too. And that actually really grieved me, the loss that she could not at that point comprehend fully. And yet there's also so much joy. We prayed for this child, the link that we went to, to adopt her and to finally be united with her was such a joy. And I said before that she was well cared for in China, but even when we we met her, she was three years and nine months old. She barely talked, barely walked. She would walk and fall. And then just spending a little bit of time in our family, she started speaking. She had a vocabulary speech explosion and we could not shut her up. She would just talk, talk, talk. And she had a language explosion in Chinese. I was speaking to her in Chinese when we came back to America first. And she just started, she took off and, and physically, she grew four inches the first year. And you know, it's because she had a family. God created us to be in a family with people who see us and know us, who think we're special, that we're cared for in that way. We are all in need of this kind of care. And if we don't have it, we cannot flourish. We cannot flourish. And we cannot flourish in our faith if we, are, if we don't have spiritual parents. Left alone, we would not make it. And God has just taught me so much from this little girl, Hannah, who's had such an open heart to love us, to receive love from us, and to teach me about God's love in adopting us. Mordecai, he adopts Esther, of course, as his own daughter. And so chapter two, verse seven, it reads, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. He raises her with all of the privileges of his own daughter um, and certainly treats her that way. And I think Mordecai is pretty amazing because he's a single dad. Nowhere is it mentioned that he's married or that there is a mother figure here. And he takes her in with, and she's completely dependent. And this is such a contrast to King Xerxes and Hammond, who, if you are not useful, you are disposable. Here, Esther is completely dependent and vulnerable, and she is absolutely indispensable and loved and cherished 
by Mordecai. And he instills his faith and values in her. We know that because of how she responds later in the book. And I think that my bet and my hunch is that there is a tight-knit Jewish community in exile. That's what happens in immigrant communities. You um, find your people and you become a tight-knit community, a tight-knit community whose everybody is your auntie and uncle and they watch over you. It becomes a nurturing community for you in this land where it's a different culture, a pagan culture out there for Esther. And I have a feeling that she was nurtured in a tight-knit community. So she had Mordecai, but she also had people around her who were teaching her her faith and her heritage. Now, Esther, of course, is taken away from that community when she is chosen to go to become a concubine in the palace. And this is not, I don't know that this was voluntary, you all. And I want to be clear, this is like being trafficked to become a sex slave. Because basically, when you go to the the palace, your whole reason for being there is to satisfy the king. It is not, I mean, maybe it's like a nice spa type of experience, but it is not something that Mordecai had planned for or hoped for his daughter. And so he visits her daily to get updates on her because he's worried. You better believe he was worried about her there. He could no longer protect her. They could do whatever they wanted with her in the palace. And he tells her to hide her identity. And that always is kind of curious to me. But when you think about it, it's because what could, if they knew who she, her real identity was, how they might take advantage of her. So he was trying to protect her to say, don't tell people who that you're Jewish. So all of a sudden, Esther, who is probably protected in this tight-knit Jewish community, and um, she can't exercise her faith. She cannot do that publicly. She doesn't have people around her who support her in that. And she's surrounded by an opulent, materialistic, carnal culture and how difficult that must have been for her. And so I just want to just bring out the fact that they, Esther remains tied to Mordecai. I don't know if they could have seen each other. They get reports back and forth. Mordecai comes to the courtyard of the harem, gets reports about how Esther is doing. I don't know if they have direct communication, but they certainly are able to send messages to one another. But that's That's like probably the only outside communication that Esther has, the invisible queen. So she, she obviously finds favor (laughs) with everyone in the, there, but especially the king and the king chooses her to be queen, but she's still invisible. Her feelings are not recorded. We don't know how she feels about this. It certainly seems like it would be an honor to be queen, but she has no voice in this. Events are happening to her. She is passive. She has no power. Her whole purpose is to please the king. And again, her identity is still unknown. She is not seen and known. And I wrote down imposter syndrome uh, because that's something that you experience when you feel like you're not seen and you're trying to prove yourself. I've experienced this when I'm in situations too where I don't feel like I'm good enough. I'm trying to accomplish things and prove myself, but I always feel like a little bit like, am I good enough? I feel a little bit like people don't really know 
know my, 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 my identity, truly understand what that's like to be an Asian American woman in certain spaces, especially if I'm the only one. Um, so my question here is, as Asian American women, can we relate to this feeling that Esther might have felt of being a little invisible? What was that like for her? How can we relate to Esther in different places where we might have risen to a certain place in our professions, in our career, and we might be the only one, or we might not feel seen or understood. Not being known, being hidden in many ways, feel more comfortable sometimes being hidden because we're used to that. There's a proximity to whiteness that we can have, white adjacent. And so sometimes we feel like and sometimes we can feel like we benefit from being white adjacent, but we don't have the same voice. And sometimes we feel like we can be a conspirator, ignored, overlooked, undermined, patronized. When we do speak up, sometimes we feel like our voice is dismissed or even worse, patronized. That's why I feel like the ministry of WOW is so critical because this is a place where we can be understood and feel seen and supported. And just like Mordecai was for Esther, kind of a lifeline where she was seen and known, it, it enables us to not forget who we are, who, what our identity is in, in places where we feel lonely. It can empower us. Just even having some people who believe in us um, encourage us. It can empower us in those situations where we are alone, othered, dismissed. If I say something in opposition to the majority, I need to explain and defend my position. And I feel like we have to do that over and over again, boxed in, labeled into categories. The next C, um, so we have care and, and counsel is the next one I have because Mordecai counsels Esther in a critical moment. He calls her to action. Oh, you know what? I, let me just point out one other thing that I forgot. When Esther was made queen, um, when she meets the king for the first time in chapter two, verse 15, I'll read it. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. She won the favor of everyone she saw. And um, I, I wanted to highlight that verse because it actually... It calls out Esther's identity at the very moment where she's going to meet the king. It's almost saying, look, don't forget who you are. Remember whose daughter you are. Remember you're the daughter of Abihail, even though he's dead, <laughs> even though you are removed from your family, you are the daughter of Mordecai. You are the daughter of the king of kings, you know, and you're here, you're about to be raised up into this position, but don't forget who you are. And I think that is so important that like, as we go through this book is that like, it's don't forget, like Esther, don't forget who you are. Don't forget whose people you come from. And when we get to chapter four here, Mordecai is about is informing Esther of what's going on with her people. And it's kind of crazy here that she is, she has the proximity to the king. <laughs> uh, we were talking about white proximity and being white adjacent to power. And yet she has no power and she has no idea what the king has done. He's issued this edict 
to annihilate her whole people. And she doesn't know. She doesn't know. And it's Mordecai who informs her. The way it comes about is interesting. Chapter four, verse one, Mordecai learned of the king's edict and all that had been done. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. He's making a scene and Esther's uncomfortable. He, she hears about this and she sends a messenger to give him clothes to change from his sackcloth. She doesn't understand. She doesn't get it. Mordecai is in mourning and deep grief and anger. There is a role for anger. And sometimes as Asian American women, we're taught to, to repress our anger. It's not appropriate. But actually, anger sometimes is the, is the appropriate emotion to have. When you, when you see injustice and evil like this, the appropriate response is righteous anger. It is deep grief. And that is what Mordecai is exhibiting here. I love this quote from St. Augustine. It says, hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain as they are. The role of anger can actually propel us to action. It can fuel the courage that we need to act in the face of injustice. And that's what happens here, I think, for, for Mordecai. He, his anger does not lead him to despair. In fact, he is hopeful. He is hopeful because he brings this to Esther's attention. And what he says is actually reveals his faith and his hope, even in the midst of such anger and deep grief. I wrote down that we will miss, this is a Kairos moment here. Kairos is the Hebrew word for time, but not just chronological time. It's a, it's a significant moment of time that happens in a critical moment where we can, we have the opportunity to change, to transform, to change in a way that can have significant impact. That's what Kairos means. And this is a Kairos moment. And without a Ezer community, we will miss our Kairos moments. We need those, our community around us to help us discern the Kairos moments that come in our lives. And we need them to help encourage us and push us forward. And that's what Mordecai does. Esther, her first response is one of fear. And I think that's actually, I'm, I'm actually glad that she responds in fear because it makes her relatable and human. And, and of course, like um, if she didn't feel afraid, I think that she would not have a good read on the situation because her situation is pretty precarious. The king has not called her in a whole month and you do not go to the king unless you are beckoned. And if you do, the king could, you know, order you to be put to death unless he extends his scepter to you. And we all know what happened to Queen Vashti. The king, you know, can act how at a whim uh, and you just cannot control that. So of course she's afraid, but she has a choice. Is she going to identify with God's people or not? Is she going to speak up and stand up for those who don't have a voice or not? Each of us are going to face times in our life where we have that choice. 
to speak up or not on behalf of the vulnerable and to advocate for justice. God will, has given us each a unique position of influence wherever he's placed us. And he gave us a unique position that we have a role to fulfill his purpose. And it's whether we're a mother and we're, we're being a Mordecai to our children, it's in our churches and our workplaces. Sometimes we um, can are the only ones who can influence things a certain direction because of our unique role. And I want to posit that as Asian American females, we have a unique position in the larger cultural discourse. We have a unique position where we may not be as threatening to people in power because of our demeanor, because of our petite stature, because of whatever reasons. We may have more access and privilege, but we understand what it's like to be marginalized, to be unseen. We have a voice and we can speak up. We can use our voice to speak on behalf of the vulnerable. For such a time as this, this is often quoted and it's um, a famous line that Mordecai says to Esther in this moment. For if you remain silent at such a time as this, deliverance will come from a, they come from a different place. God's purposes will prevail whether we get um, with the plan or not, right? And we'll miss out if we miss this Kairos opportunity. And who knows, but that, that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai gives a purpose for Esther in her position. God made her beautiful for a reason. And the suffering that she's endured, he sees it. He knows what, what it was like for her to lose her parents. He's been there through, with her through all of her tears. He knows what she has endured. And there is a, a purpose behind that. It is not for nothing. And when you lose sight of con your connectedness, to your blessing, why God has blessed you, you lose sight of being used by God. That's what Dr. Tony Evans says. God has a purpose for blessing you. And it's not just to bless you, it's to bless you and to use you as a blessing for others. God has something bigger for us. And I wanted to share a story about my friend, Mike Parker and Sasha Parker. They had four children of their own and they came to a point where they were deciding whether to go forward with their first adoption. And I say first because they ended up adopting five older children, five children with different special needs. These were kids that are not deemed adoptable. They might age out. They weren't, they weren't the, the kids that are on the top of the list when people are looking to adopt. These are the kids that the Parkers adopted. But in the very beginning, when they were sort of on this journey, Mike, his dad actually was passing away from cancer and became a Christian at, towards the end of his life and said to, um, to Mike, you know, everything is grace. Mike's dad had lived a life where he was a successful businessman, made a lot of money and had lived for himself, for his own glory. And But at the end of his life, he realized, you know, everything is grace and he was going to go and be with Jesus. But he said, your decisions, your choices matter in this life. They are significant. Your choices matter. And that was actually what began their adoption journey, that hearing those words, your choices matter, 
all is grace, but your choices matter. That was a turning point for Mike to say yes to adopt. And they haven't turned back. They have made a significant impact in the lives of these children. And it's changed the course of their family. They are living out the gospel in in a way that many of us don't experience. So it's just a beautiful story of how we use our blessings to bless others. The small acts of kindness, the things that we do to serve other people, they add up to change and impact other people in ways that we may not even see or know, but that those things add up to a meaningful and wonderful life. And when you think about that in terms of the ways that we invest a little bit, a little bit in other people's lives, that they may get to know Jesus a little bit more, the impact that we make on people life by life, one person at a time, it adds up in the kingdom of God and it makes a huge difference eternally. So we may think, you know, we're not Queen Vashti. We're not going to save this whole people from genocide. And we're not the Parkers who are going to adopt five kids, probably. We have a purpose. Our lives have purpose because of what God has. God's call on our lives. And it may be to live in a small town, to make a life, make a difference in the lives of the people that are just in our community. But it is a wonderful, meaningful life for Jesus. We've done care and counsel. And now we have the next C, which is commit corporately. So this is Esther's response. So after Mordecai says, you know, maybe God just put you here for such a time as this, her response is also beautiful. It's um, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Um, What is so striking to me is this is her first response to Mordecai's like call to action to like, this is your Kairos moment, Esther. She doesn't say, let's get together and devise a plan. Let's work out the details of a plan. She doesn't think, how can I use the strengths God has, my beauty or my physical, like to seduce the king or charm the king? No, she says her first thought is, No, let's fast and pray. Let's call on God's people to fast and pray together. That shows something about Esther that she has not forgotten, even though the time in the palace that she's been away from the Jewish people, from people of faith gathering together, she has not forgotten her identity. She has not forgotten who she is. She says, you know, she she speaks with a voice of authority, confidence and courage. And this is the first time we see this from her. She's again, been a passive act. Um, Things have happened to her, you know, favor has been on her, but this is the first time she is speaking and she speaks with such spiritual authority to invite others in to fast and pray. She is exercising her royal and spiritual authority. As Asian American women, again, Christian women, we've often been taught to be gentle and quiet is good and beautiful to be deferential, right? But so is speaking up and using your leadership gifts that God has given you. We have a voice. God has given us. And there's a time to exercise that voice and own it. Own your voice. This is a uh, quote uh, by Andy Crouch, who has written a lot on power. 
Power is a gift, the gift of a giver who is the supreme model of power used to bless and serve. Power is not given to benefit those who hold it. It is given for the flourishing of individuals, peoples, and the cosmos itself. Power's right use is especially important for the flourishing of the vulnerable, the members of the human family who most need others to use power well, to survive and thrive, the young, the aged, the sick, and the dispossessed. Power is not the opposite of servanthood, Power, rather servanthood, ensuring the flourishing of others is the very purpose of power. I love this because sometimes we, as Christians, sometimes we have this like weird relationship with power. We're like, power is bad, like power corrupts, but actually power is a gift from the Lord. If we use it, if we steward it in the right way for others, on behalf of others. That's, that's what God does. That's what Jesus does with his power. He is using it for the flourishing of others. That's the very purpose of power. Where does Esther's source of confidence and courage come from? She rises up in this Kairos moment, right? She rises up. And I want to say that where does that source of her confidence and courage? It doesn't just come out of thin air. Mordecai, has given her a vision of God as a deliverer. You know, deliverance is going to come, whether it's going to be from you or not. God is a deliverer, right? And um, he is a rescuer of his people. Mordecai is an example himself of integrity and courage to Esther. He um, did not pay homage to Haman. Um, he worshiped God only. And, he, and Esther grew up seeing the example of faith lived out in Mordecai. Faith lived out in the flesh. And we need that, right? We need embodied faith and courage lived out to see that as we grow in our faith. And the text is kind of silent about how Esther's inner life is, what ha- what's going on in her inner life in the palace. But I infer that she must have learned the practice of prayer and fasting from, you know, the young age. She didn't lose that in the palace. The influences of the palace, she she probably had hung through her losses of a young age. She had learned to depend on the Lord in those times. And so in this time of need, she calls on the Lord because she has done that a time and time again. And so she gathers her people together, right? She gathers She tells Mordecai to do that with the Jewish people. And she gathers her own people inside the castle, the the maids and the servants, her people who are serving her inside the palace too. They might not know that she's Jewish at this point, right? Like they don't know, but she's telling them to fast and pray on behalf of her people. Gathering your people, issuing that spiritual invitation to join her in this is it's critical. It's critical because when we go through these moments in our life of challenge, we need we can't do it alone. We are going to need our people to pray with us, to support us, to walk together. And the last ch- chapter, or actually chapter nine, the next to the last chapter in Esther, it's about celebrating. And I'll just read verse 26 and verse 27 of chapter nine, it says, therefore, these days were called Purim from the word Pur, because everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year 
in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and every province and every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among the descendants. It's so important to celebrate and remember that God was the deliverer of their people. And when we do that, it connects us to the larger story of God's salvation. You know, so much of evangelical spaces is about our individual salvation. It's almost like the communal space of worshiping and celebration is really just to build myself, my individual spirituality up so that I can live that out myself. But no, actually it is a corporate living out of our faith. Tish Warren, um, she's written in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, a practice of communion. When they take communion together, they picture actually the communion table going on for miles and miles and that they are sitting together, not just the people at the table with them, but together with all of the saints, with the saints that have gone before them, and that it connects us to the larger story of faith. We would not have faith, but for the person who shared with us, for that, the person who shared, going back to Jesus and, and his discipleships and passing that on. And for us, we remember and celebrate together because we need more than ever in this time to remember the goodness of the Lord so that we don't lose hope when we hit the hard times. And these have been hard times. They have been hard, hard times and that we are not alone. So we need to celebrate and feast. And there's so many pictures of feast. It starts, the book of Esther begins with the, this opulent feast of the king, but it's only for his self-glorification. Here we have it in Esther, the feast of remembering God's deliverance. And then in the book of Revelation chapter 19, there's another feast, the feast of the lamb, the wedding supper. It's a feast where we are celebrating together at the table. And I think there's something about that where we are remembering this connectedness in our story of faith that strengthens us, that nourishes us, keeps us going in this Ezra community. We hope that you enjoyed this teaching. We are a community that walks alongside women to uncover and affirm their calling through prayer, teaching, and celebration. Visit womenofwonder.us to learn more.